And so he, how he handles Abraham and his descendants is really how the Lord's going to handle us as New Testament Christians. So it's an important uh, topic to understand the nature of God and what he is and what he isn't. And uh, we saw last week that Israel is part of an eternal plan of God and that they are still in that plan, even though they have rejected the Messiah. God has not given up on them. God is still for them. And we ended last week, and I want to look at these verses again in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness have attained to the righteousness, even the, notice here, righteousness of how? Faith. In contrast to that, verse 31, but Israel pursuing the what? Law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. And so he's making it clear that the Gentile believers have come in the faith of Abraham. They may not be of blood Jews, children of Abraham by bloodline. But yet, as we saw last week in chapter 9, that there are children of Abraham are a part of the bloodline, but they don't have faith as Abraham had faith. And so they're not counted as the seed of Abraham, even though they are physically of the seed of Abraham. They're not of the faith of Abraham, and God doesn't count them. And we saw how Esau and Jacob was chosen, or we saw Isaac and Ishmael, and we saw that it was those who had faith in the God of Abraham in the same way Abraham did. And now we see, he says that the Jews are unwilling to pursue a faith, by, uh, to pursue a righteousness by faith. They want to hang on to the law and, and pursue righteousness by the law. And so in verse 32 of chapter 9, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And there in verse 33, as it's written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him, the stone is a him, will not be put to shame. We know that Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 21, Jesus said of that stone, fall upon that rock and be broken, lest that rock fall upon you, referring to the day of judgment, and it crush you to powder. And so the issue is the Jews still want a religious system, and that religious system make them righteous before God. And God is not offering a religious system to be made right with him. He's offering his son and that through knowing his son and walking with his son and obeying his son and submitting to his son and receiving the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross as our payment of our sin and his resurrection as conquering our sin and death, that is how we will have eternal life. Well, in chapter 10, picking up with this same thought, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So as we get to the end of chapter 9, it sounds like Paul's sort of being harsh towards Israel. And he turns around as he did earlier in chapter 9. And he says, man, I love those guys. And I just, my heart's just being ripped out for them. Remember earlier in chapter 9, he said, I would be willing to make a deal with God to go to hell that the Jews could go to heaven. I'd be willing to be anathema, go to the lowest, darkest, fiery parts of hell, that they might be saved. Of course, God's not bartering with Paul, but he's he's expressing the deep desire for their salvation. And now he, he repeats that again, going, hey, I'm not being harsh with them. I love them. My heart's desire and what? Prayer. 
Why did Paul have such a great heart of prayer? Because he had a great heart of care. (laughs) You know, often people don't pray because they just don't care. And really the answer to a deeper prayer life is a deeper love. I've seen many a Christians who want to fly as low as they can as a Christian without crashing. They're at the lowest altitude they can go. And there is no prayer in their life, really minimal. The word, sharing their faith. They just want to cruise along as low as they can go and and try to maintain some type of relationship with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, something tragic will happen often in their life. Maybe their marriage, maybe their health, maybe their finances. And in that tragedy, all of a sudden they pull out, pull back on the wheel and, you know, they are praying. They are reading the Bible and they're going to many church services and they're just constantly thinking about the Lord. They're strengthening themselves in the faith. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You look at them going, wow, you can be this amazingly fruitful person who hears from God and splashing on everybody else the things of God. And wow, I, I've seen you at points in your life be that fruitful of a Christian. But man, looking at it right now, um, you realize how low you were. And I'll tell you what, I, I've seen many a person who finds their child in a hospital very sick, a minimal Christian who all of a sudden will stay on their knees by that bed for days, not eating, not drinking, not sleeping, crying out to God with their Bible at their side because they love their child. They have a great care and therefore it turned into a great prayer. Often our love is for ourselves and we will pray much for ourselves. We'll pray for our health, our finances, our family. But Paul here is not praying for himself. He's praying for a people at this time that are trying to kill him. There's a group of assassins that say, we won't eat or drink until you're dead. They got together and and they got Paul arrested, thrown into prison for years and lied about him. And and Paul is not even moved an ounce by their evil towards him. His heart is just, I love them. You know, they're acting like non-Christians because they're non-Christians. And if they become Christians, then they won't have that same heart. And my heart, my desire, my prayer is that they'd be saved. That God would give us all such a desire to see men not go to hell, but go to heaven. To see men not live in darkness, but live in the light. To see men know the grace and the love and the mercy that you have from Jesus every day. That they would have that same exact experience with the Lord. Well, in verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, Paul is sort of describing himself here, isn't he? How his name used to be Saul, and he was there holding the people's coats while they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death. And after that, he began to find people and get them arrested and thrown in prison, even killed. And finally, he got letters to go outside the country to Damascus. And on his way there in Acts 9, the Lord stopped him, and he became converted. But he also was once who had a great zeal for God. But notice here how Paul looks at the the Jews that are trying to kill him. You know, he's not all negative and down on them and thinking evil of them. He's like, man, they got a lot of zeal. Yeah, their zeal is they won't eat or drink until they kill you. 
Yeah, but you've got to admire that zeal. They've got a lot of passion. That's pretty cool. Uh, okay, Paul. But he knows it's without knowledge. Just like him, he used to, with all his religious activities, try to please God, and he knows that they're trying to please God even though they're doing evil towards him. They just don't know. They're just ignorant. And in verse 3, he, he categorizes it into two groups of people without knowledge. In verse 3, the first group, they are being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They just, they just don't know. They have no idea how far away from the righteousness of God they are. And so somebody might ask the question, well, you know, my dad is, in this case, we're studying Judaism, a Jew. He's been going to synagogue every week for 50 years. He keeps every Sabbath. He's a good, moral, honest man. And you're saying all of that does not equal the righteousness of God. Yes, that's what I'm saying. It wouldn't matter if it was Judaism, if it was, you know, the Muslim religion, the Hindu religion, or Christianity. You see, there's a lot of Christians that are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They, they have in their mind this brownie system. And someday they're going to stand before the pearly gates and they're going to look on a list and see if they had enough brownie points to get in or not. So we're going to church. Bing! Brownie point. Bring your Bible. Bing! Another brownie point. Be nice to people. Bing! Another brownie point. Teach Sunday school. Bing! Another brownie point. Man, I love Sundays. A lot of brownie points. Bing, 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 bing. Monday, Tuesday, a little slow on the brownie points, but pick back up on Wednesday. And somehow they're going to stand before God someday and he's going to say, why should I let you into my heaven? And you're going to go, check my attendance, brought my Bible, ushered, taught Sunday school. <clears throat> and God's going to be impressed with that. You see, that's just ignorance. Because they're, they're thinking that the currency of heaven is brownie points. It would be like this. Let's say you owned a a car dealership and somebody comes up and they have $25,000 cash and they want to buy a car. Are you going to accept that? Sure you are. The next guy shows up with this box with leaves and grass and pine cones and a couple of pictures in crayon. He painted of his family there. He drew of his family. Ah. And uh, he goes, hey, I'd like to get that a new car. And you open this box and you're going, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? That's my payment for the car. I've been collecting the leaves and grass and pine cones for years. It's worth a lot to me and therefore should be a lot worth a lot to you. And you're going, this, this doesn't mean anything. Well, here's a couple pesos. That doesn't work. A couple Hungarian forints. Well, that's not going to help. A couple Peruvian soles. I'm sorry. That's, you, you know what? This isn't our currency. This, this has no value to me. Well, I'm going to call the ACLU. We're going to have a talk. But in essence, the car dealership guy is saying, look, it's my car, and I'm going to tell you what I will receive for that or not. And God tells us that to go to heaven, we have to be perfect in righteousness, the righteousness of God. Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount by saying, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, one day or 10 million years, we can never in ourselves 
attain to the righteousness of God. Now, really, with that analogy, I was being really kind. Because the Bible tells us our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. So really, when you bring your brownie points to the pearly gates, it's like bringing a 50-gallon drum of dirty diapers and people throwing up in it for the last month. And you show up to heaven with this giant thing, you lift the lid off and go, here you go, I want to buy heaven. All these dirty diapers and all this barf. That's, that's really what we're presenting before God. Our righteousness is as filthy, stinking rags. There's no way that our righteousness is going to be the currency of heaven, and they're ignorant of this. Then there's another group of people in verse 3, and that's those who are seeking, pursuing, to establish their own righteousness. Then here's the key. Have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The second group of people are the people maybe there at the day of Pentecost that heard the message of Peter and 3,000 souls were saved, but probably 10,000 rejected it. A few days later, there's a man who had been born lame who started walking and leaping and praising God and 5,000 souls were saved, but probably 15,000 others saw it and rejected it. And they just simply said, you want me to, to take all of my religious works and count them as nothing? That's what Paul said. Paul said, for me to come to Christ, I had to take all of my good works, all of my Judaism, all my religiousness, and I had to count it as scupula, very strong word for dung, that I might gain Christ. And yeah, it's, it's a humbling thing. You, you want me to humble myself to a guy from Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, Jesus wasn't even educated. He's just a, a carpenter. You want me to humble myself and receive a carpenter from Nazareth as my Savior and Lord? Yeah. He is God's Son. He's the only one that could be a perfect sacrifice. And they stumbled at the stumbling stone. No. I I reject that. I'm going to continue in my Judaism. I'm going to continue to establish my own righteousness by the works of the law. And the Bible tells us early in Romans that the law can show us we're sinners. It cannot make us righteous. That all it can do is make us guilty before God, not establish our righteousness. And they're unwilling to submit to it. So there's those who are ignorant. And you know what? The gospel can make them wise. But then there's those who know and are unwilling to submit. And in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To who? Everyone who believes. Christ is the end of it. Once you receive Christ, the law has done its job. It's tutored us to a Savior. It's tutored us to Jesus. And we no longer need a law now. And here we see that... um, He's saying that the law can be dead to you as well. In verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. If you look at the law from the day you were born until present, till the day you die, you had to have kept perfectly all 613 laws of the Torah. And there's one thing as you read the laws is that I've already broke them. (laughs) And according to the law, James says, if you're guilty of one part, you're guilty of all. And once you're guilty of it, you're guilty. You're you're done. 
The law can only work for somebody who lives a perfect life from the day they're born till the day they die. And nobody has done that. Nobody ever can do that. And you're just put under the law to keep trying to live according to this standard that you can't. You know, it's sort of funny because people often create their own laws and they still can't do it. It's like, man, if you're going to create a law, at least one that you can get an A at, you know. But in our own sadistic mind, we continue to condemn ourselves over and over again because we know we're condemned. And so we create some law that even we break and we constantly are under it. And so everything about the law begins to turn us off about God, about the Bible, about church. It's just this negative thing. I, I think about church as this negative, heavy, black cloud, heavy weight. I start thinking about God or the Bible or it's just this thing that's weighing me down and, and quenching me out, smashing me. Yeah, that's all the law can do. And Jesus is the end of that. <laughs> Jesus will bring you to the end of that black cloud. He'll bring you to the end of that weight. He'll bring you to the end of that condemnation. You're now going to heaven because of Jesus. And we stand before those pearly gates. And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? We don't, you know, fish in our back pocket for our list of good works, you know, our plan B. We have no plan B. It's just like, I'm not worthy to go to heaven. I'm worthy to go to hell. But I believe in the free gift that Jesus Christ has given me through his death and resurrection. He's the end of all the condemnation and he's the beginning of a, a walk with him. Notice in verse 6. For the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That's to bring Christ up from the dead. <clears throat> we just actually studied this a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy 30. Verse 12 through 14. And the people were sort of sarcastically saying... You know, how can anybody please God? It's impossible. You know, you got to be able to go down to the depths of the, of the abyss. You have to be able to travel into the heights of the heavens. And, and, you know, who? Who can ever be good enough that God would be, be pleased? And, he's, and the scripture goes on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. But what does it say? It finishes off by this. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, notice here, the word of faith which we preach. It, it, it's not some mystical far out thing that nobody can ever quite understand or reach. It's available. It's accessible. It's simple. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. What, what is it? It's that word of faith. You're a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And his death and his resurrection. And in your mouth confess it. That it's true. That he, that, that he indeed is the Savior. Notice he goes on in verse 9. So if you confess with your mouth. Here's the key guys. The Lord Jesus. <clears throat> believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead. You will be saved. In verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's interesting, verse 9, nine starts with confession, with the mouth, and then believing in your heart. And then verse 10 starts with believing in your heart and ends with confession of the mouth. It, it's irrelevant. It, it's, not a, it's not a law. It's not a work. It's not a process. It's when the word of faith reaches you. It's, it's a part of you. 
Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. You know, the the thief on the cross, both of them were mocking Jesus. And then it came to a point that the thief's mouth opened. If you compare the Gospels, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When? Kingdom. King. Raised from the dead. He believed that Jesus was going to raise from the dead. He believed Jesus was Lord. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It started in the heart and it came out of the mouth. But we think of the the soldier that was observing Jesus through this whole thing. Jesus finally says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. And and out of his mouth blurts, truly he is the son of God. (laughs) Then I think his heart believed. (laughs) It wasn't very Roman of me. Hope Caesar didn't hear that. But then he, and he realized it's true and his heart believed. You know, it's, it's the reality of coming to terms who Jesus is. And uh, what a wonderful experience that is. But notice that he's Lord. You, you see, that's the key. James 2 points this out. He says, anybody can say they have faith. Doesn't mean they really have faith. I mean, a demon could say he believes in Jesus. Demons used to be angels in heaven with the Lord. Of course, they believe him. They, they know for a fact that he exists. Some people think, oh, I believe Jesus exists. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's enough. Demons believe that. Are demons going to live in heaven forever with the Lord? <clears throat> they say, but, you know, I'm, I'm really sensitive to Jesus. So are demons. In the name of Jesus, they shuddered. Every time I hear amazing grace, I just cry and cry and cry. You know, I understand you're emotionally moved by Jesus. So are demons. They were so emotionally moved, Jesus had to shut them up. Because they began to proclaim him and saying, surely this is the son of God. Don't torment us before the time. Don't judge us before the time. He had to shut them up because they were revealing too much. The Lord wasn't wanting to reveal all of who he was yet. They were, they were so emotionally stirred, they couldn't shut up. <laughs> They were so emotionally stirred, they trembled at his name. But here's the difference. Does a a demon say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I want your will. I want your way. I want your desire. I want to do what pleases you today. Does a demon do that? No, he doesn't. The angels of God, yes. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, your will be done. Your kingdom, your power, your glory be manifest. Yeah, the angels of God, yes. And, And the believers the same way. Many will come in that day, not a couple, not a few. Many will come and say, what? Lord, Lord. And what will Jesus say to them? Why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? That's going to be his response. But, 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 but we were with you when you preached. We were there when you did miracles. Matter of fact, we did miracles. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. We prophesied. He didn't argue with them. But he ends the conversation by saying, Be gone from me. I never knew you. You did not do my will. You see, they they were willing to be a part of the Christian club. But they never came to that point where Jesus was their Lord. He was Lord. I'll sing it. He is Lord. He is Lord. That's not the question. Even the demons know that. Have you submitted to him as your Lord? Is he on the king? Is he the king of your life? Is he on the throne of your life? Is he your God? Is he your savior? Have you submitted your every second of every day of the rest of your life to him? 
You see, that's when salvation comes. That's when faith has really entered the heart. And that's where the mouth will, will speak, whether audibly or not, it's irrelevant. You could speak it in your heart. You could just have that, 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 those words that say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. And I want all your will that you have. You see, at that point, salvation's come. In verse 11, <clears throat> for the scripture says, notice this next several verses, it's very emphatic. Whoever believes on him <clears throat> will not be put to shame. Whoever. It's sort of in contrast to the last couple of chapters. Remember chapter 8, talking about predestination and foreknowledge, and chapter 10 about election and all of this. And <clears throat> it's a wonderful doctrines of the predestination, the foreknowledge, the election of God. They're majestic. They're powerful. They, they comfort the heart of every believer. They're wonderful doctrines. But now he comes back, if you would, on the other side of the coin, the personal responsibility of man. And he says, why is Israel not right with God? It's not because of some eternal plan of God. It's because they won't stop pursuing their own righteousness by the law. And now he comes back and he just says, you know what? It, it, we can just talk, stop this talk. It's just simple. Whoever, anybody, everybody who will believe on him will not be put to shame. Last week we were talking about it's not to him who wills or him who runs, but it's God who shows mercy. It's, it's God will have mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he'll harden. Either you're a part of the eternal plan of God or you're not a part of the eternal plan of God. And you say, but I don't like that. I want to be a part of the eternal plan. Of, I want to be a part of the eternal plan of God. Then receive him into your life. I don't want to receive him because you're not a part of the eternal plan. Well, I don't like that. Then receive him. I don't want to receive him. It's because you're not a part of the eternal plan. And here we come back, and, and it's, it's very practical. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In Romans 2, we saw by creation itself, it's such a giant pointer to God that on the day of judgment, no one's going to have an excuse saying, I didn't know enough to pursue God. You see, once a person begins to pursue God, God will direct him to his son. I didn't know enough. No one's going to have an excuse. They're going to be put to shame. Everyone who has not received Jesus in their life is going to be ashamed on the day of judgment. But those who believe on Jesus will not be put to shame. He goes on in verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're a part of the, the, the race of Abraham or not. It doesn't matter what your nationality is worldwide. The word Greek is simply the word everybody who's not a Jew. <laughs> the rest of the population of the world. For the same Lord is over who? All and is rich to who? All who call upon his name. It doesn't matter right now. Whoever you are, anybody, everybody, all, if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and make him the Lord of your life, 
All the riches of God are yours. All the forgiveness, all the mercy, all the grace. Your name written in the book of life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Not given to us like a coat, but our very nature changes. God's Holy Spirit lives in us as the holy of holies. You become the righteousness of Christ the moment Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. One day we'll be in a brand new body with him. No pain, no sorrow, no suffering in that body of righteousness. All the riches of God are yours. All the mercy you need, all the forgiveness of you need. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He who began that good work in you will complete it. All the riches of God are piled in on you if you will put your faith in him. And in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now hold it. God doesn't mean everybody, right? I mean, there's some really bad people out there. Some really evil people in the world. So, I mean, he, when he says whoever, I mean, he's, he's talking about not, not the bottom 10% of scum of the earth, right? I remember years ago, <clears throat> a few days before Ted Bundy was to be executed, the guy was a monster. He was truly evil man. But James Dobson was able to get in and ended up sharing the Lord with him. And Ted Bundy received Christ. And I remember that where Ted, where James Dobson came out and said, "Hey, Ted Bundy is born again Christian. He's our brother in the Lord. And yeah, he's going to be executed tomorrow, but he's going to go to heaven." And I remember later this news person and interviewing this person, some spokesperson, and. And the guy hadn't heard this. And the person said, hey, James Dobson said this. And the guy just gets beat red and, you know, white stuff starts foaming in his mouth, you know. And he just, just with anger, he can hardly talk. And he just said, I'm a Christian. And if Ted Bundy goes to heaven, I want Jesus to send me to hell. Because I don't want to live in any place where Ted Bundy is. And he just starts going off how... This is ridiculous, and it can't happen, and there's no way. And You know, I, I can emotionally understand that. I mean, I, I can understand people that have raped and murdered and, and you know, serial killer. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's beyond really what the mind can process, isn't it? It's truly wicked. But what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> he taught us that the law is not just judging our actions, but it's judging our hearts. And Jesus said, every time you say idiot or stupid, God puts that down in his book as murder. Every time your heart gets angry and you lift a fist and you just say, oh, what are you really saying? Love to kill you. Love you to disappear right now. That every time that anger is in your heart, God puts it down as murder. And then he said the same thing about lust. Every time you lust in your heart. But be honest. Some of your lust is absolutely beyond perverted. Some of your lust is illegal. It's despicable. If the lust in your heart was revealed, people wouldn't want to sit next to you right now. It's probably as almost despicable as Ted Bundy's lust. So the reality is, if we clocked you by God's judgment the last year on the freeway, 
How many people have you killed? You know, it's not going to, the number's not going to be that much different from Ted Bundy's. Maybe more. If we were to really judge openly, honestly, and one day all things will be exposed. And to look at the real lust, perverted lust in your heart. I don't think it's going to be that much different. Okay, I, I agreed. He's, he's in a class worse than you. But you're still in a very bad class yourself. You see, 100% of us should go by right, by worthiness. We should all go to hell. I mean, yeah, maybe Ted Bundy will be in a little bit hotter part of hell than you, but not much, if any. The, the reality is, is we are all sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, our sins, the wages of our sins should be eternal death, damnation, in a lake of fire separated from God. And so the fact is, is that yes, even the Ted Bundys or the thief on the cross who was mocking Jesus a few minutes earlier, whoever, no matter how deep your sins, no matter how numerous your sins, God will forgive you. And that's the message we have. Hebrews, we're going to be studying a few weeks. It says that he saves to the uttermost. And there's a great sermon called from the guttermost to the uttermost. God saves the scum of the world, and you are it. (laughs) The weak things of this world, the base things, the despicable, perverted, wicked, sinful things of this world, that is who God has chosen. Jesus said, I did not come to seek the healthy. I came to seek the sick. I did not come for those who are found. I came for the lost. We are all in a class of our own sin. But yet, whoever calls, no matter how deep your sin no matter how numerous your sin, no matter how deep of a rut you have yourself in, God's love, God's forgiveness is greater. Jesus paid for all the sins. Yes, even the despicable sins of Ted Bundy on the cross. And he's paid for all of your sins. So whoever calls on the name of the what? Lord. Jesus as my Lord shall be saved. And in verse 14... How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So here we see now on a a very personal responsibility level. Where God is saying that people aren't going to believe unless they at least know to believe. And how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless somebody's there to tell them? And how is somebody going to be there to tell them unless they're sent? So it comes back now to this personal responsibility. Am, am I in a place spiritually where I'm hearing from God to be sent? Am I hearing God saying, Brian, go talk to that person about me? Brian, Talk to that person at the gas pump about me. Or am I in a place spiritually, I'm saved, but I'm, I, I no longer have a sense of my own lostness. You see, often when people get saved, they're, they're, the day after they become a Christian, they look at people and they know exactly where they were at because I was just there yesterday. And it was empty and it was lonely and there was no grace and mercy and forgiveness. There was no Jesus. 
I didn't have the richness of my heart and the word and prayer and the Christian brothers and the songs I'm singing at church are amazing. The sermons are incredible and people are there. They just love me and it's amazing. And they look at their, everybody they know is basically non-Christian. They come out of that world and their heart just yearns and they're just out there without knowledge, but with a passion, they're telling everybody about what Jesus has done. I was blind and now I see. But as we get farther and farther removed from, if you would, a world that doesn't know Christ into our Christian community, we begin to forget from where we have come from. We forget how lonely and empty. We forget how desperate we were without forgiveness and mercy and grace and that sense of harmony and rightness with God. And, and here he's saying from God's point of view, when I see people that are in that place, I can send them. When I see people in my name going out and speaking of me, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. The good news. <laughs> what, are we, what are we telling people? Are we telling them, you need to join our religion. First, you've got to shave your head, have a big ponytail coming out. No more meat. Wear these beads. You've got to four times a day fall on your knees. Hi, hi, Christian, Christian, Rama, Rama. You know, do that 90 times. What are we doing? Are, are we putting some heavy religion on them? Are we sticking them with a bunch of laws and requirements? What, what are we preaching? We're preaching Jesus. What we have is the gospel. That means good news. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. You're a sinner, but it's okay. Christ paid for your sins. Receive him in your life. He writes your name in the book of life. He's going to give you an eternal, eternal destiny with him. And right now, he'll be with you. He's a merciful high priest who sympathizes with you in all your weaknesses. He'll be your best friend. You can walk and talk and live with him. That's, that's our message. <laughs> it's not some... Weird, heavy religion. It's not you got to put on a three-piece suit every Sunday and, you know, go through all these ups and downs and kneeling and burning candles and doing this and quoting this and memorizing this. and It's just come into Jesus and walk with him. What a, what a wonderful gospel we have. But you know what? We're in the world where the Bible describes it as Satan is the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. The whole world is laid down with this big, giant, wet blanket of Satan. And we sense it as Christians. We're always trying to move forward and we're trying to get this wet blanket off us. And, and we sense that when we want to tell somebody about Christ, that we are offending Satan. We're, we're, we're offending the atmosphere of this world. We, we sense that we are crossing a line we're not supposed to cross. And we're entering into somebody's private world. We're opening, unlocking a door we're not supposed to unlock. And we're entering into somebody's private world where we haven't been invited and they don't want us there. And as we begin to share with them, we begin to pull the claws of Satan out of them. And he takes it very personally. Paul said in Galatians 6, I will show you in my body my scars that I preach Christ. Simply wanting to tell people about Jesus. He had internal scars of rejection. Those are the hardest ones. But yet, aren't you glad somebody invaded your private world? Aren't you glad that somebody came in and, and maybe, maybe you rejected the gospel many times? I've had so many people through the years tell me that I had this neighbor who used to share with me or I had this guy at work who shared with me. I had this relative 
And I, I did everything I could to destroy them. I used to lie to, about this guy at work. I, I know there's a couple of promotions he didn't get because I, I lied about him. My neighbor, I got all the other neighbors to hate him. <laughs> the relatives, I, I started saying stuff, just lies about him, got all the relatives to not like him. That's, that's the reality. And we, we know there's a cost. We know if we share the good news, there's a cost to us, and there is. That's the reality. There's a cost for us to share Christ. But you know what? It may not be beautiful to your neighbors, the guys at work, the world, even yourself. But it's beautiful unto Jesus. It's the beautiful looking at those feet on beautiful green rolling mountains as they're going off to share the Lord with somebody. And in verse 16, but they not all obeyed the gospel. They've not all obeyed. For Isaiah says, in Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed our report? So we've, we've got to understand here that God is not telling us to go out and be successful. I am telling you that you've got to close the deal or it didn't count. God's not asked us to close any deal. He just said, go into the world and scatter seeds. That's it. We're not closing any deals. In John 4, he said, one is sowing, another's watering on the seed that was sowing. And the reality is, is, is if somebody does receive Christ when you witness to them, it probably had nothing to do with what you just said. <laughs> it probably had to do with 30 other people planting seeds and 100 other people watering and grandmas and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and friends praying like crazy for them for the last 10 years. And you happen to show up on the day when the tomato was ripe. And you're here going, ah, I've never heard John 3.16 the way I shared it. Matter of fact, all I said was, John, and he started crying. It was amazing. I'm so good. You know, you'd be surprised how little it had to do with you. And so often we share the Lord and we feel like failures because they just said, get the blank out of my face and don't ever talk to me again. And you're just like going... I don't even try. And here it's telling us that, hey, it's never going to be the majority of the people that praise you and love you and thank you for preaching the gospel. It's always going to be a minority. It's always going to be a small group of people that appreciate it. It's always going to be a small group of people who receive him. It's never going to be this vast majority. You're never going to get this pat on the back by the devil or the world or often even fellow Christians. You're doing what you're doing because it pleases the Lord. It brings glory and, and joy into him. And we're not doing it to be successful. We're doing it because we have love. We do it because we know it's true. And this week you can do it. Every one of us are going to be some at the gas station or at the grocery store or the AM, PM getting coffee or 7-Eleven or something this week, right? Step out. Invade somebody's private world and just share with them what God shared with you that morning from the word. Hey, sir, I don't know you, but this morning I was reading Ephesians chapter whatever. And here's what the Lord spoke to me. Or just tell him, you know what? This is what Jesus means to me. The Bible says in Revelation, by the testimony of the saints, the Satan is overcome. You have a double-barreled shotgun. Your testimony. You can overcome the devil. Bring down tear down strongholds simply by your testimony. Well, in verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by, notice this, the word of God. 
So once we believe in the Lord, our faith now needs to grow. And how does our faith grow? One way here is is through the, the word, through the Bible. And George Mueller, a great man of faith, as a very young man, he, he said that every season of my life, God's taking me through a spiritual season, and I need to have allowed God to speak from the whole of his scripture in that season. So he set out to every three and a half, four months to read through the whole scripture. You know, if you wanted to read the whole Bible in a year, you often see those. It's like, what, a chapter and a half a day or something? It's not very much. It, it takes you probably, you know, 10 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible in a year. But yet to read the entire Bible in three months, it's not that much more. I mean, probably about 30, 40 minutes a day. You know, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes lunch, 10 minutes at evening. You could read the entire Bible about every three and a half months. Imagine here, some of you young teenage kids, you're 12 years old, 13 years old, and you're reading the Bible four times a year, allowing each season of your life God to speak to you at 12 and 13 and 15 and 18 and 21 and 28 and 30. Imagine when you've been... 30, 40 years in the Lord, and you've read the Bible four times or more a year, what God could speak into your life. So often we don't hear because we're not making ourselves available for him to speak. We just got to get into the word and turn on the, the station. God's speaking, but we got to get our antenna wired in and our dial in so we can hear the Lord just going to the word. And in verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Psalm 19, verse 4, yes, indeed. Their, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. You are a part of that sound. You are a part of that microphone of God to the world. And in verse 19, I say, did Israel not know? Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation or a people group. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation or people. He's talking about us Gentiles. That us Gentiles are provoking the Jews to jealousy because uh, of our love for God. It's every time we go to Israel, the, the Jews are amazed. We know their Bible better than they know it. We love their land better than they love it. We'll go to where Elijah called fire to heaven and we're standing there and we're just in awe and we're worshiping and having a Bible study and the, and the Jews are going, we could care less. Where Elijah called fire out of heaven. Why do you guys care? We, we love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob more than it seems they do. Of course, not all Jews, but the majority. And that our love for their Bible, our love for their forefathers, our love for their land, our love for their heroes of the faith, all of these things provoke a jealousy to them to say, you guys have a greater love than we do. Why? And in verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, Isaiah 65, 1, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was manifest to those who did not ask for me. The Gentiles, missionaries, apostles, going into the world and coming to places that had never heard of the name of Jesus. And there, even though they didn't seek him, God sought them out. And in verse 21, but to Israel, he says, Isaiah 65, 2, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So again, don't, don't conclude here because it doesn't conclude until the end of chapter 11. But where's God standing on Israel right now? Those who have rejected him, those who have heard, but they continue to want to establish their own righteousness by the law. He says, my arms are open wide. I'm keeping them out. I'm keeping the door open. 
I love you. I want to forgive you. If you'll come, come. And we know it's not just to the Jews, but it's also to the Gentiles. To a contrary, disobedient, unbelieving. The word there, disobedient, can also be unbelieving. People. He's, he's not mad. He's not angry. He's not judgmental or condemning. He's simply saying, you rejected it the first five times you heard it. Doesn't mean you'll reject it on number six. Come. I still love you. I still died for you. I still paid for your sins. You can receive the forgiveness of sins. Whoever will come to all and on all who believe, everyone who believes, I'll be rich to you if you'll come unto me. And let's pray here now. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And we do know there are some here right now that have just dawned on them. They're on the brownie system. They may have been Christian a week or maybe 50 years. But they've always had the back pocket of their good works in case the faith thing didn't work. And they're here today, stopped in their tracks, realizing that salvation is by God alone, by faith in the work of Jesus alone. It's not dependent upon our works, but upon his grace. And right now, God is touching hearts. He's calling, he's begging you to come unto him right now and allow him to give you that freedom of sin, to give you his riches of forgiveness and mercy and grace and him with you now and him with you for eternity. And if that's you right now in your heart, to believe and, and right now in your soul, just cry out to him, Lord, I am a sinner. And I'm so thankful because my sins are so many and they're so horrible. But yet, no matter how sinful or wicked or abominable I've been, your grace is greater. Your forgiveness is greater. All my sins have been paid for on the cross. I believe that. And I receive the one sacrifice of Jesus and that God has raised him from the dead and that I right now, I submit myself to you as my Lord and my Savior. Your will, your way be done from this point forward. Whatever I am, whatever I will be, whatever I possess, whatever I will possess, 100% of all of me is yours. Second by second, day by day forever, Lord. Your will be done. Come and take the throne of my heart. Be my Lord, my King, my God, my Savior. From this point, I'm just a sheep following my shepherd, you. I give myself in total surrender. And Lord, we thank you today for the provoking to one another to love and good works, to, to begin to care, to be a person of prayer, and to cause our feet to be beautiful feet unto you sharing the gospel, hearing your voice, being stirred by your spirit. And in season or out of season, we're just out preaching Christ and him crucified. The good news of all that you have done, all the riches of Christ are theirs. And we thank you again. Wash us in the word. Create faith in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Lord's good, isn't he?